Well, the story is told, uh, I assume, of uh, four pastors who went away on retreat. Uh, they went to, away together as friends to go and do a bit of bonding, you know, some men bonding sort of exercises. And after a long day of outdoor activities, these four gentlemen settled in around, uh, around a nice open fire to relax for the evening. And after a short while, uh, the first one spoke up. Brothers, can I share with you about my struggles with temptation? They agreed, of course, brother. That's why we're here. We're here for each other. Well, for some time now, he confided, I've been really struggling with looking at inappropriate web content. Oh, well, well, that's nothing, said the second. I'm in a real mess. It started with a few lottery tickets, and then I, went, I moved on to the online casinos. Now I'm hooked on gambling. I'm spiralling into debt. Well, said the third, I've had a real struggle with drink over the years. Recently, you know, it's got so bad, I broke into the church and I helped myself to the communion wine. The fourth pastor was quiet for a while, then broke the silence. Brothers, my temptation is worst of all. I am a compulsive gossip. <laughs> now, if you'll excuse me, uh, I need to make some phone calls. <laughs> We've uh, recently started this series in the book of James. And it's a really practical book, isn't it? It's been full of wisdom for the Christian believer, for Christian disciples. And last week, uh, we moved from looking at the, as James starts with, the trials of life, the difficulties that come up in our lives, uh, from, you know, things that come at us from the outside. We turn to looking at the battle that goes on within us, the battle with temptation, the inner battle. And James slows down a little bit here in verses 14 to 15, which we looked at last week in detail, and he puts temptation under the microscope. He does this so that we'll understand how temptation really works. If you want to uh, keep a finger in Galatians, we're going to be moving around the Bible a lot this morning, uh, but if you want to keep a finger in Galatians and turn to James chapter 1, you'll see it there in verses 14 to 15. James is explaining how temptation inside us, the mechanisms that are involved in bringing desires all the way through to sin and, and death. He explains in verse 14 that all temptation starts with a desire, any desire, just desire, human desires, and not necessarily illicit ones. It might be the desire for food, the desire to be loved, to be accepted. It might be a sexual desire, not necessarily illicit. And though these desires, though, are not necessarily evil, says James, what happens next in the process of temptation is a luring and a, an enticing and a reeling in, a dragging, some translations say in verse 14, a dragging of you towards sin. And if that luring and enticing is not dealt with, says James, the desire will conceive. That's the words he uses. It's that sort of conception word that we get. And at the point of conception, life starts to be brought forth. And the giving birth to sin becomes inevitable. You've crossed a line. James concludes 
And we've got, a di we've got the diagram here, if you have a look at it. Do you want to pop it up for us? Um, oh, because we, we did this last week and didn't put the diagram out either. Okay. James concludes, if sin is allowed to grow up, if sin, the sin that is birthed from our desires is allowed to go unchecked, that is, if we continue in that sin unrepentantly for long enough, the result will be death. The wages of sin is death, says the Bible. Now that, what's going on there, especially the first part of it, with the desires and the luring and the, 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 the enticing, all the way up to this conception point there, that's the battle that goes on within each one of us. It's the battle that we're engaged in as Christians. So how's it going? How's it going with you? How are you doing with that battle? And I know sometimes we have like good days, bad days, good weeks, bad weeks, maybe a good month or a bad month with these sorts of things. But having discussed the content of what I said last week as we went through this with a few people at the beginning of this week, I made the, de the decision that it's, it's worth taking a little excursus here, just hitting the pause button on James for one week and looking in a little bit more detail practically at how do we fight this battle? How do we fight it? So my aim this morning is to try to give us a few more tools, a few more tactics to use in the fight. I have seven, so we're going to be here a little while, but I'll try to go through them fairly quickly. So now look with me again at the verses that we read, uh, that, that uh, Brenda read to us from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul writes, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. <laughs> okay, there we are. He continues, verse 17, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Right here, Paul is spelling out what goes on inside the Christian. This is Paul's words for it now. Within the Christian, he says, there are basically two powers at work. Did you see that? This is the battlefield of sin. Imagine that battlefield all marked out, ready to go. On the one side of the battlefield, you've got God, the Holy Spirit. He's at work in our lives, says Paul to produce that wonderful list of fruit that we read later on down the passage. Love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, all of those things. He's at work to produce those things because he desires for you and I to live a life that is completely pleasing to God in every way. That's one side of the battlefield. On the other side of the battlefield there is what Paul calls here, the, or what the Bible's called, the sinful nature. It's an interpretation of the word flesh. You've got the flesh on one side, you've got the spirit on one side here, the flesh on the other side over here. Sometimes the Bible uses that word flesh just to mean our physical bodies, just what we're made of. But the way it's used here as it gets developed by the Apostle Paul starts to mean something like my natural human inclinations outside of my faith in Jesus and my reliance on the Holy Spirit. 
Did, did you catch that sentence? Okay, I hope that's clear enough. My natural human inclinations that, that go on outside of my faith in Jesus and my reliance on the Holy Spirit. It's when I'm acting on my own, all puffed up and being me. The flesh or the sinful nature, which is not a bad little um, description of it, is it? The sinful nature desires for me to live a life to please myself. So I've got the, the spirit over here wanting me to live a life to please God in every way, and my flesh over here. No, live to please yourself. Live to please yourself. That's really at the bottom. I think that's what's going on. Now, obviously, those two goals, pleasing God and pleasing myself over here, they're going to clash violently in the battle. That's the battle that we're engaged in. That's why temptation is such a battle. Have a look at verse 17 there. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want to do. Do you see the fight? This is, of course... I don't know if I even need to say it. This is, of course, a battle only going on in the Christian. Do you see that? It's only really going on in the Christian. Why? Because it's got to be going on in someone who has the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you've got a battlefield with only really one player on it, haven't you? It's a one-sided battle otherwise. For the unbeliever, occasionally there is the battle inside. Of course there is. There's a battle. The unbeliever might battle with their conscience... They might fight with grit and determination, but that's not quite the fight being described here. That's a bit of a red herring, that fight, and we often think that that's the fight we need to be involved in. But step back and look at what the Scriptures are saying. The battle really is against the Holy Spirit working away in me here, trying to get me to please God, and me and my inclinations to just please myself. That's, how, that's the battlefield of sin. So for the Christian, we've got to take seriously what James has told us about sin. Have a look then uh, at, uh, if you've still got your finger in there. Well, let me read it to you, because you probably have taken your fingers out now, James, haven't you? I'm making you move around. James 1.15, James says, After sin has conceived, it gives, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That's a serious sentence, isn't it? It gives birth to death. Death. The Puritan scholar John Owen, in his treatise on the mortification of sin, as he calls it, as treatise against this temptation, warned, maybe you've heard his line, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's what I want you to hear this morning. And we need to get serious about this. If you're a note taker, take notes. I'm going to just try and open up what the Bible says about this. Have your Bibles open at the very least. This is boot camp because we're involved in the battle. You need, to, you need to smell the sweat and see the effort going on here as we grapple with what the Word of God says this morning. And we're, what we're going to do is look at seven tactics for standing our ground in temptation. Let me take you through them. I'll try and do these as quickly as, as I can. But I hope this is going to be helpful to us. It's certainly been very challenging to me this week. First one, beware pride. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to be here a little while. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I said it's boot camp. Boot camp, you're going to use your thumbs a lot. 
Okay, you've got to be able to thumb your Bible. You'll see why the Word of God, the Bible, is so important in this battle, if you don't know already, by the end, I hope, of, of this, uh, this morning. So let's get using our Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're just going to read a couple of verses from verse 12. Paul writes, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Therefore, my my dear friends, flee from idolatry. This text, as you, you can see it, just on its surface value, it's got to be really, really helpful, hasn't it? There's a lot of really good stuff in here. Just to set the context here, Paul has just been talking about the rebellious history of the nation of Israel, if you look further up your page, especially in those wilderness years. He's in 1 Corinthians 10 here. And he's using that as an example to warn his readers these were people who came, he's using as an example, of people who came, they came out of Egypt. They experienced the rescue, the deliverance of God. And they stood at the mountain and they heard the thunder and they received the covenant word of God through Moses, his servant, who met with God in a personal encounter. They were God's people, very privileged really connected with God, his chosen ones, who'd experienced all kinds of wonderful things, his salvation, his blessing. And yet, says Paul in those verses, yet most of them fell to temptation and died in the desert. Paul describes it as them having sinned so greatly that their bodies littered the wilderness. There was a wilderness full of bones, because of falling to temptation. Privileged people experienced God's salvation, and yet that was the result. So says Paul, we just read now, so take heed. Listen up, lest you fall also. Because pride is a deadly poison. And one of its forms here is complacency. It's the in your head saying, yeah, but I never do that. I'd never do that. When you hear of the fall of other people, when you hear of the things that have happened, don't ever believe that it couldn't happen to you. Now, that's hard to hear, isn't it? You're probably thinking, oh, that's a, bit, it's a little bit extreme. I mean, there are some things, aren't there? You know, you hear of such heinous things, such as murder, or sexual abuse, or adultery, or addictions of various kinds. And you think, I'd never, I'd just never do that. It's just not something I'd ever contemplate even. Paul says, never say never. Never say never. Be very careful, lest you fall also. Our hearts are so deceptive. Temptation is so strong. I guess almost, I hope at least, almost 100% of grooms on their wedding day believe, firmly believe, they'd never cheat. Don't you think? On that wedding day, standing at the altar, 
I'd never be unfaithful. Statistics tell us 50 to 60% of married men cheat on their wives. Isn't that incredible? And 60% will be divorced before their 20th anniversary. 60%. Instead of just being appalled by the way that others fall, Paul says, take heed. Watch out. Watch out you are vulnerable to. There but for the grace of God go you and I. And you better believe that. No temptation has seized you, says Paul in verse 13, except what is common to man. <laughs> Part of the human experience. I take it it means that all temptations, though they might take different forms, and they might be of different severities for each of us, they can affect anyone. You are not immune. So take heed. Take sin seriously. Adopt a defensive posture against Sin, and don't let your guard down. You know, when uh, there's, there's a couple of people in this room I can see who ride motorbikes. You have to learn to live this way on a motorbike. You have to ride defensively all the time. As you're going down the road, when I drive down the road on my motorbike, I am assuming whenever I pass a road on the left, someone's going to come out of it. I'm assuming when I approach a roundabout, someone will come on in front of me. I do that because I, I need to be on the defensive, otherwise disaster will happen. I mustn't just become complacent. Pretend there's no problems. So beware pride. Second thing, better pick the pace up, haven't we? Second thing, trust God. So you're susceptible to any temptation, just like the next man or woman. However, you need to take refuge in the knowledge that God is sovereign. God rules over everything. So look at those words in verse 13 again. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Do you see in that sentence, there's, there's the sense of God's control in the temptation process. There's a control in there. There's an overseeing. He's in charge. He's in charge of our trials. And he is faithful. Yeah, as James told us, do you remember? He doesn't change like the shifting shadows. He's dependable. You can trust him all the way through when you're going through a trial or a temptation. Now, this verse is not saying that God is going to push you beyond your own ability to resist or endure it. I think we sometimes hear the verse that way because we start thinking, as I said earlier, about temptation differently, that, that temptation is all about, can I do it? Can I, can I hang in there? I'm, I, do you know, I fell because I just, just didn't have enough self-control. That's, that's not what's going on here. God is never going to push you. It's not saying God won't push you beyond your ability to resist or endure it. God is not in the business of poking his children to see what they're made of. That's not what God does. That's not what testing is. We are never to face trials and temptations on our own, just equipped with what's in here. That's not what we're to do. God doesn't want that. No, we are always to face our trials with God's help. He is with us. He provides grace for our trials. And the promise of the verse here is that we'll be able to endure any of the temptations that come with the grace that he faithfully supplies. That's what this is saying. 
So you can trust him for that. Paul actually reminds the Corinthians in his second letter, uh, this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good work. Is God going to leave you shortchanged? No, he provides what we need for everything he calls us to do. So we're reminded then that if we hold on to him in any trial or any test or temptation, it will not break us. Trust him. Trust him. Hold on to him. Trust him enough that you won't turn away from relying on him and start trying to trust something else. I think that's the key there, isn't it? Trust him. Don't be complacent then. Don't be proud. Don't believe you couldn't fall. And instead, trust God. Turn to him. Third thing. Third thing, and still in those same verses, look for the exit. Paul continues, No temptation seized you except which is common to man. And God is faithful and not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. So along with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escaping so that you're able to endure it. Now, I don't think this is necessarily saying that there will be a quick exit point out of the temptations or the trials that we go through. Uh, in, in many cases, there just isn't. There isn't some quick, some magic bullet, some kind of instant way out. If you can just locate the right door and go through it. This is perhaps a bit more like, you need to picture the paratrooper who's just been dropped over enemy territory to do his mission. And he gets down there and he's got to find his way back to safety across the border. There's no quick fix here. He can't just press a button, climb out of an escape hatch, and he's back in friendly territory. He needs to follow his map and find the way of escape through it. I think that's more the picture that's going here. The way's been provided, says Paul. As long as we stick to it, and as long as we stick to it, we will endure under temptation. Whatever the situation, God's word... God's word's our map, isn't it? God's word will will light our way, the way to escape. It'll show you the path that gets you through the situation and out of enemy territory. So pick it up and use it. If we're talking about habitual sin, as many of our temptations are, the things that we just are so frustrated, that we fall into time and time again, then perhaps you need to mark some of the exits. Perhaps you need to mark them. Write them down. What wisdom or light from God's word do you need to have handy? What maps do you need on your walls? I've known a number of ministers who have put up verses on the walls of their office. Things to help them, to get them quickly to the guidance, to the reassurance, to the way that they need to see, to see the exit points. So don't let pride bring your fall. Trust in the grace of God and know your exit routes. I hope this is helpful. The fourth one here is, and this is now turning to the words of Jesus himself, watch and pray. If you turn with me to Mark chapter 14, just briefly. Mark chapter 14. This is, of course, words that happened when Jesus is in the garden on the night of his arrest 
and he comes to his disciples who are drowsy. Right in, in the moment where they need to be alert, they're falling asleep. Jesus says to them, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body, the flesh, is weak. And that's using flesh the other way. <laughs> Those are Jesus' words to his disciples. He knew that they were going to be tried and tempted imminently to forsake him. He knew that Satan was going to go for them. He was going to try and sift them like wheat, is the words he used to Peter, to try to destroy their faith in him. So he gives them the best advice. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Be aware of what's happening and pray. Bring it all to God. Ask him for the grace to endure and to hold fast. Watch and pray. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews chapter 4. Come on, get those thumbs going. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 to 16. Or just write it down. It's up on the screen, I think. There we go. <laughs> For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When trials come, when temptations are upon you, brothers and sisters, approach the throne of grace. It's great language, isn't it? It's great language for getting on your knees and praying. Approach the throne of grace and ask for what you need. Ask for the help in times of trials. Fifth tactic, run. Run. Sometimes running is right. I'm sure they, they seem to do a lot of that at boot camps, don't they? There's lots of, you know, marching along and da 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 yeah, getting, getting up the, the kind of fitness for running. 1 Timothy chapter 6, it'll be up on the screen there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. This is uh, Paul talking to his young apprentice. He says, listen, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs, battling with temptation. But you, man of God, flee from all this. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Or Paul's words again to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We can flick it up on the screen. Just follow, follow me with it, Daniel. There we go. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Or we could even go to those verses we had up at the beginning there when we started looking at these things in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee, flee, flee. Do you see the theme? Sometimes the best thing to do when temptation comes is to run. Run for your life. Run from the temptation. Get away from it. Get as far away as possible. It's particularly effective with relationship sort of stuff, isn't it? Are you prone to flirting? Leave then. <laughs> You've removed the opportunity. You're prone to anger. Walk away. Walk away. Don't do it in a sort of angry way, if you can help it. But walk away. Take a walk. Prone to gossip. Get away from those hungry ears. Leave the staff room or, or, or the, the, the... That's now singled out all the teachers, isn't it? <laughs> the 
place where employees sit together in a common area. Leave it. Follow the example of Joseph. Do you remember the story of Joseph? Joseph had that great career, didn't he? Manager of Potiphar's household. Great wealthy household in Egypt. Left in charge of all of Potiphar's estate. He was trusted with everything, the Bible tells us. Everything was under, he could use it and, and, and work it any way he wanted. But Potiphar's wife, well, she had plans for him of, of her own, plans for seduction. Having noticed, we're told, how good-looking and handsome and young and strong Joseph was, she repeatedly tried to get him into her bed. But Joseph was having none of it. Genesis chapter 39 says this, With me in charge, Joseph said to her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. No one's greater in this house than I am. My master's withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. You get the, the, what's going on in the story? Day after day. This is a relentless temptation. Temptation comes like waves up the beach, crashing against the God-fearing integrity of Joseph every day. How does Joseph deal with it? Well, he refuses to even be in her presence. He tries to get away. But Joseph hasn't been fully tried yet. The story continues. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by the coat and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. It's the fateful day, isn't it, when the, 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 the trap was sprung. Joseph had to enter the house to do his job. Conveniently, Mrs. Potiphar's arranged it so that there's no one else around. They're completely alone. Who will ever know, Joseph? I wonder just how strong the temptation was for him. I imagine it was very strong. But he does the only thing in the situation that he can. She has her hooks in, so he leaves his coat. He runs. He, he just runs for it. Well, it didn't end well for Joseph in that particular instance. Despite his innocence, he was falsely accused and sent to prison. But he had not sinned against God. And that was what, what mattered. That was a win. It was a win. He'd won. When you know your enemy is strong, or when you're caught unprepared, sometimes the best option is just run. Run for it. The next is equally radical. Number six, cut it out. Run away, cut it out. This is from Matthew chapter 18. It will come up on the screen for you. Jesus said, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. 
Yeah, interesting, isn't it? I mean, you can't argue with the logic, actually. And it's immensely practical. If you're struggling with something, remove it. Remove it. That was pretty much the reasoning, you know, behind ejecting the Canaanites from the Promised Land in the Old Testament. Why was God so saying, you just got to get them out. You've got to shove, you've got to, to every city. Remove them from there. Pronounce the ban on them. Because anything you leave is going to lead you astray. So God says, take them out. Take them out of circulation. That's really what the command is in the Old Testament. To remove all of that stuff from common use. Just remove it. Take it out of circulation. My dad used to do this periodically with the TV when we were growing up. It was, it was maddening. If he believed the TV was becoming a stumbling block, even if it was just becoming a stumbling block to him and not to us, he would take the TV for a walk. It went down to the TV shop and it happened over and over again. I had one friend who, who simply wouldn't have an internet connection at his house. Yeah, he was involved in the tech industry, but had no internet connection at his house. Another friend of mine has, I mean, we laugh at him because he's got this brick of a phone, but he's avoided getting a smartphone. He knows he needs to just remove that temptation. They've cut it out. They've torn it off. They've thrown away the thing that made them stumble. And that's really good advice. Is there something you need to cut out? Is there something you need to throw away? Is there something you need to be really decisive about in removing from your life that you could remove and you're just leaving it there and it's a snare and a trap to you? Don't be complacent about your temptations. Trust God. Look for the way out. Watch and pray. Run. Cut it out. One final tactic. And I'm going to finish on this. Go on the offensive. I'm sorry we've been so long this morning. Just a lot to say. We're at boot camp. So just keep running. Remember what John Owen said, kill sin or sin will be killing you. He was commenting on Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Just take a look at it with me on the screen there. Romans 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We are to put to death. Literally, we are to kill, to slay the misdeeds of the body. In other words, our sin. How do we go on the offensive? Well, Paul says we do it by the Spirit. It's the same as he said in those verses from Galatians chapter 5 where we read, that we read at the start, where he said in that first line, didn't he? So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We have to kill our sin by the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, it's actually quite obvious when you see it, when you walk through it. In Ephesians chapter 6, which we've been doing with our children around the breakfast table this last couple of weeks, we, you read about the armour of God. Do you remember that passage? The armour of God. Put on the armour of God. Uh, and in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says this, put in the armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. I think we've got this for the screen. There you go. You can read it with me. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's our battle. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand, stand firm then. The belt of truth 
buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. There are six items in that armour. Five of them are defensive. Only one is for killing. That's why this is actually easy when you look at it, isn't it? Easy to understand, not so easy to do. One's for killing. Only one item there is an offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's been rightly said that the battle with temptation at its root is a battle for happiness. We choose to sin because we believe the hype, the lies, that our sin will make us happier than obeying God. It's the same right back in the Garden of Eden we looked at last week. You've got to learn to spot the lies. I've been told that the way that you train to recognise uh, counterfeit money is you spend some time with the genuine article. Isn't that right? You study a real 50-pound note. You learn about what makes it real and what it should look like. And when you intensely study that, then when there's a fake, you spot it quickly. You don't study the fakes. You study the real thing. And once we spot the lie, we've then got to pick up the sword. As the word of God is heard, God tells us faith is kindled. The power of the Spirit is supplied. It's the Holy Spirit word of God. Brothers and sisters, take up your sword. Don't leave your sword just in a corner of the room somewhere when you're engaged in the battle. And that means we need to take a long, hard think. What satanic promises have we believed? When you're sitting there, when you're undergoing temptation, what satanic promise have you believed? And what are the better promises that God has made? Stand on those promises. One, one final word as we close now. I often meet people who've been discouraged in the fight. They tell about you know, how they've battled with the same sinful impulses, same as they would call them besetting sins, and they've battled for so long and so hard, they've started to doubt that they're even saved. Well, two things to say in closing, if that's you. First one, what's the lie that you might be believing? I'm so bad, God can't possibly have chosen me. Brother, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. God knew about your sin even before he called you, didn't he? He knows everything about you. Unless I can't conquer this sin, you start thinking, I can't be saved if I just don't get a handle on it. Sister, Christ died for your sin. You didn't die for your sin. Christ died for your sin once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Second thing, what does the constant battle tell you? Do you remember as we opened up looking at Galatians? A battle only happens when there's two sides fighting it. Dead men don't fight. The battle is a sign of life. I worry more as a pastor about people who've stopped fighting. I worry more about them than those who are in the thick of the battle. The battle with sin is with us until we reach our heavenly home. So until then, as Paul constantly reminds us, we must fight 
the good fight of faith.